0: There are some fundamental differences in men and women, and that doesn't mean that we should be making stereotypes or requiring anyone to act a certain way because we expect them to act that way because they're male or female. But it's just an acknowledgement that male and female brains are hardwired differently.
1: This is the Daily Signal podcast for Tuesday, August twenty-second. I'm John Pop, and that was John Bursch. Author of the new book, Loving God's Children The Church and Gender Ideology. How does the church community respond when someone comes through the doors who identifies as transgender or who is struggling with their gender identity? What does a response of love look like? Virginia Allen sits down with John Birch on today's show to ask these questions. Please stay tuned for the interview. For over 35 years, the Heritage Foundation Job Bank has been helping conservatives at all professional levels find employment in key positions in Washington, D.C. and across the country. We can help you connect with positions in the administration, on Capitol Hill, in public policy organizations, and in the private sector. To learn more about the Heritage Foundation Job Bank, go to heritage.org job dash bank.
2: It is my honor today to be joined by John Bursch. John is vice president of appellate advocacy and senior counsel for Alliance Defending Freedom, and he is author of the new book, Loving God's Children, the Church, and Gender Ideology. John, thanks so much for being with us today.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
2: You know, John, I honestly think that this could be one of the most important conversations that I've ever had on this podcast. We are living in a time when likely everyone listening knows someone who identifies as transgender or maybe they themselves are struggling with their gender identity and for the church, The question is, what does love look like? How do we love people well who do identify as transgender or who are struggling with their gender identity? So I'm really excited to just dive headfirst into this conversation today. Um, But before we really get to to asking that big question, I want to begin by just asking you to share a little bit about how you got into researching gender ideology. You're an attorney for Alliance Defending Freedom What started you on this path of researching the gender ideology movement?
0: Well, I can tell you, I I never set out in my professional career to write a book about gender ideology. (laughs) Um, I don't think anybody dreams about that when they're going to college or especially law school. Uh, But for me, it was really a natural evolution in the way that our religious liberty and free speech litigation practice was moving at Alliance Defending Freedom. Um, If you go back five years, uh, there were just a couple of cases here and there, mostly involving privacy spaces where schools were allowing, uh, in particular, boys who identified as girls to use the girls' showers and locker rooms and things like that. Uh, But things really started to take off um, in earnest when the Obama administration uh, issued its reinterpretation of Title IX to require that at all public schools and suggested that might also apply to sports teams. And then you had the Bostick decision at the U.S. Supreme Court, which you know, basically rewrote the, the common understanding of Title VII to include gender identity. And now all of a sudden it takes up almost all of my religious liberty and free speech docket at the Supreme Court and elsewhere, dealing with compelled pronouns and dealing with um, federal regulations that require colleges and universities to house people in dormitories based on gender identity rather than their their sex. Um, and then it just kind of goes on and on and on. Um, So it was everywhere. And so I was diving into it from a legal perspective, a cultural perspective, and also a science perspective. And I was starting to get a lot of questions from um, friends at church. And so I started to dig into the theology as well. And soon I was giving presentations at at churches and at diocesan events and and other places. And so it really was just a natural accumulation of all of that wisdom um, that I was getting from reading in other places. Uh, preparing presentations, that the book just naturally sprang out of that, mm-hmm. um, and here we are.
2: And here we are. What were the questions that were coming up in your own heart and mind as you were starting to do more research on the gender ideology issue?
0: Well, the very first question was, how does the the church approach this? You know, how should we think about this as Christians? And the the material that I was reading just kept coming back to the same thing: uh, that God created us as embodied souls. In other words. Our bodies are a gift from God, and they have something to say about who we are. They express something about our personhood. Uh, This is very different than the second century um, heresy called Gnosticism, that we're just souls trapped in our bodies. Our bodies are really just cages to be manipulated. And ultimately, our greatest good is to get our souls elevated past our body to heaven. And if that's your view, then you can do anything with your body that you would like, because it doesn't matter. But if we view our bodies as a gift that are part of who we are, that expresses who we are, and as Pope Francis has said on on numerous occasions, we have to accept that gift. Because if we don't do that, then we're going to be um, in conflict with ourselves. We're not going to be able to enter into genuine relationships with other people. And we're even rejecting God himself because we're taking control over the gift he gave us and doing what we want with it instead of what he wants with it. So that, that was number one. Number two, I just wanted a better understanding of the science. You know, wh- where is it that this this mental dysphoria comes from, and what do we think about the treatments? And as I delve deeper into that, I learned a couple of things uh, that I highlight in the book that I thought were really, really important. First, there is no scientific study, no medical study that's ever been done that shows that there is such a thing as a girl born in a boy's body, or vice versa, or anything like that. Um, we, we can't prove it with science. And so right off the bat, we need to have a healthy skepticism. Um, second, that if you look at uh, adolescents, kids growing up, going through puberty, becoming teenagers, um, 80 to 95 percent of them who identify as a gender different than their sex, if they're not affirmed, if you don't do anything with them, you leave them to their own devices, they will naturally align their mind with their body. But if you start to affirm them with preferred pronouns and opposite-sex stress and letting them use the opposite-sex privacy facilities and participating on the sports teams, nearly 100% of them will go on to persist in their dysphoria. And, and what do we know about that dysphoria? Well, the best long-term studies that we have of adults, those who went all the way through um, surgery and tried to transition to a different sex that way, that suicide rates actually go up and incidents of mental health issues go up and all kinds of other long-term health problems results, including, obviously, permanent fertility in many cases. And so it, it turned out that this whole thing was not based on sound science. And, in fact, at the end of the road, um, encouraging someone to pursue a transgender identity left them in a much worse situation than they would have been otherwise, by almost any way that you can measure it. So in that sense, the, the theological teachings of the Church and the science are in complete alignment. Mm.
2: Wow. You know, I I think you've in part addressed this, but I want to ask you a little bit more specifically when we're looking at having conversations with folks about the transgender movement and about the gender ideology issue. Um, and we're kind of asking that bigger question of how do we love this community like Jesus would love them, are there some foundational truths that we need to establish first in those conversations? We need to say, okay, these are truths that, you know, in order to move forward in this conversation, we all have to agree on X.
0: Yes, but you actually have to even take one step before that to make sure that you're in agreement that there is such a thing as objective truth. Hmm. One of the difficult things about having a conversation today not only about gender ideology, but about almost anything, is that more than 90% of young people, this is now including them right up to college, um, have a moral relativistic worldview. What's true for me is true for me. What's true for you is true for you. Um, and so important issues like gender ideology, about when life begins for purposes of abortion, about issues like assisted suicide and, and all that, um, you, you can't even have a conversation about it because it's all a mer- matter of personal opinion like my favorite type of ice cream or the, my favorite place to go out to eat. Um, so first we have to establish that there is such things as objective truths that can be discerned through investigation, study through our reason and things like that. Um, so that's step one. And then step two, a premise in your, your question, um, is to have a mutual understanding of what love is. Because in our culture, love is portrayed in the movies and on TV and in other places as something that's just sentimental, um, kind of a a feeling that makes you all warm and tingly. And it it doesn't involve choice or will or anything like that. Uh, But the the church, I'm talking now specifically about the Catholic Church and its catechism, uh, defines love as always willing the best of the other. So it's a conscious choice. It's an action that you do affirmatively, and it doesn't have anything to do with feelings. It doesn't have anything to do even with affirming what the other person wants, much less feels good, but instead willing their, their best. So parents understand this intuitively. If there's a child and they really want to touch a hot stove and they're begging for that, it would make them happier than anything. The parent won't give in to that because they understand an objective truth that the child does not, that touching the stove will burn them. And it's not loving to allow their child to get burnt, and so they'll prevent them from doing that. So once we establish that there's an objective truth and we understand a a meaning of love to will the best for the other person, then we can start to talk about some of these basic scientific facts, Um, things like there is no such thing as a person born in the wrong body, that there is no such thing as a sex assigned at birth, sex is recognized at birth, or you know one of the big lies that – it's better to have a live daughter than a dead son. That's just not true. Uh, as I mentioned, for those in the the long-term studies, uh, the suicide rates actually go up when you have adults who have gone through transition. Um, so it's not loving at all to support someone in that. Uh, so those are some of the basic facts that we need to be discussing, but we really need to set some foundational understandings in place first to even have those types of discussions.
2: Yeah, so critical. So then what does love look like when someone walks through the doors of your church and you know, says, I'm here to be a part of the community, and I identify as transgender? Or you have a friend who you know, says, I'm, I'm really struggling with my gender identity, and I, I think that I might be transgender. What is the response of love?
0: Well, the, the very first response is accompaniment. Um, just like anybody who is um, suffering in any situation, whether it be a physical situation, a life situation, a mental health issue. Um, to love is to accompany someone, to walk with them, to support them. Um, it doesn't mean giving them support without giving them the truth. That's not loving at all. You know, That would be like that parent allowing their child to to touch the hot stove or to play in the street because that's what they wanted. Um, but, but it is to accompany them. Um, and again, Pope Francis talks about that. Um, he says that the church is like a a field hospital. And when someone comes in and they're bleeding to death and you need to stop the bleeding, asking them about their cholesterol or about their sugar levels um, isn't really a helpful thing. So first develop that relationship, show that you're supporting them, and then gradually you can start to introduce some of these aspects that will shed light on the truth and help them with their situation. Um, it turns out that many people who are suffering from gender dysphoria have other kinds of mental health issues, um, often because of life situations that happen to them. Uh, I think the statistics show that that roughly 60% of of those who attempt to transition suffered some kind of child sexual abuse. Well, you can't, move forward in any aspect of your life if you've got issues related to child sex abuse that have never been addressed. Um, so we need to help that person find a counselor. Um, it may be that they had other issues that happened to them when they were growing up. Uh, maybe it wasn't sexual abuse, but it was physical abuse. Or maybe you know, we hear from some detransitioners, they had relatives who dressed them up as the opposite sex or uh, individuals who had very poor relationships with one of their parents and that, that influenced them. Um, so we need to, to get to the root of those problems. True love is not just um, ignoring the deeper stuff and putting a Band-Aid on the surface. Um, the way I heard someone describe it recently, um, it's like a, a volcano and putting a Band-Aid over the top and saying, look mm. how, how nice this looks now. But eventually that volcano is going to erupt and the Band-Aid is going to be destroyed and it won't have done anything um, helpful. Yeah. So you know, enter into relationship, figure out what those deeper problems are, get help. And speak the truth. And those are kind of the the building blocks, not only of a a conversation with someone struggling with gender dysphoria, but struggling with any aspect in their life. Mm -hmm, mm
2: -hmm. I like that because it's so practical. We can all do that. We can all say yes to, okay, I'm going to get coffee with this person once a week and just hear their story. That's so good. Now, I I will say, I I think for, for so many folks who have grown up in the church, whether a Catholic church or a Protestant church, Um, This isn't the case for all churches, but many churches in general have have done a pretty poor job of talking about sexuality and really celebrating the differences between men and women. How do you think that that the church should go about course-correcting on this area?
0: (laughs) Well, number one is just to spend a lot more time talking about it. As you said— for years, decades, uh, um, churches, both that I've attended and that I know friends have attended, um, they, they don't like to touch the issues of human sexuality at the pulpit. Maybe in part that's discomfort because there might be kids present. Um, I think sometimes um, pastors or priests think that if they don't uh, uh, touch those issues, they won't cause controversy. They don't have to worry about collections and community harmony and all those things. Uh, but it's absolutely critical that we, we do address those because— The the fundamentalness of our maleness and femaleness as God created us is of tremendous importance of being able to understand how we interact with each other and also how we understand God. Uh, So let me touch on each one of those. First, as I mentioned, we're embodied souls. And so our maleness and our femaleness says something about who we are. And so if we're going to have an authentic relationship with someone, um, that needs to be part of it. Uh, We can all acknowledge, at least we used to all acknowledge, um, that there are some fundamental differences in men and women. And that doesn't mean that we should be making stereotypes or requiring anyone to act a certain way because we expect them to act that way because they're male or female. Uh, But it's just an acknowledgement that male and female brains are hardwired differently. And science does show that, that the male and female brain are different. Um, they respond differently to different stimuli. Um, they are uh, bathed in different hormones throughout the gestation process. Um, men and women are just different, and if we fail to acknowledge those differences, it's it's hard to have authentic relationships. So, for example, if I was a you know very religious person, which I am, uh, but I went into all my relationships hiding that aspect of myself and never disclosing it to anyone, then it's difficult for anyone to really know who I am because Mm. they're missing a whole piece of me that's an integral part of my life. Mm. Um, And so that's true about our sex too. We need to acknowledge that. So then how about that relationship with God? Uh, Well, the the Bible is very specific about Adam and Eve being male and female, uh, and that when they... To each other for the first time. We know that, that Adam proclaims in Genesis, at last, this is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. It's because he's happy that he found the companion, the Azer, the helpmate uh, that God intended for him, that he couldn't find in any of the other creatures God had created. And he immediately sees in her body um, someone who is not identical to him, but complementary. Um, so complementary that the man and the woman can come together in marriage and express their their love in such a way physically that it results in the production of a third person, someone who needs their own name, a son or a daughter. So what does that tell us about God? Well, when you're talking about mutual love unconditionally flowing from one to the other and a third person, um, you start to think, well, where have I heard that before? Well, it's the Trinity, where God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son, too, have this mutual exchange of love. And from it proceeds a third person, God, the Holy Spirit. And so in that way, the family, the domestic church, the building block of all society, which depends on maleness and femaleness, is an icon to help us understand the nature of God himself, Mm. uh, this eternal exchange of love. So when pastors and, and priests and others aren't talking about these things in church, we're missing something that allows us to have healthy human relationships. And we're also missing something that helps us to understand a little bit more about who God is. Mm.
2: Such a beautiful explanation. Thank you. Now, the book, um, Loving God's Children, you say that those who read the book will learn really a a new aspect or or a deeper meaning of human identity. How so?
0: Well, in this day and age, people associate their identity with lots of different things. Um, And we see many of the conflicts in our society Um, revolving around those identities. It might be our sexual identity. It might be our gender identity. It might be our racial identity. It might even be our religious identity. Um, Moving away from some of those cultural touch points, many people identify with the work that they do. Um, If if someone were to ask a a, a lawyer, you know, "Who, who are you? Tell me about yourself likely the first thing they're going to say is, well, I'm a lawyer. (laughs) Um, And then they'll explain what their occupation is, which doesn't really tell you anything about the person. It just tells you about their occupation. And we understand that as sons and daughters of God, that we have a different identity. In fact, our our identity isn't even dependent on being in this world because we have a a final destiny um, with God and his heavenly home forever. And when you get that identity right, all those other identities start to fall away, and it changes the whole way that you look at things. The decisions that you make, all of a sudden, aren't just for short-term, they're for the long-term. How do I make sure I make it to my heavenly home someday? Uh, they're not decisions that only benefit me, but I start to think about the importance of benefiting those around me, not only my family members and friends, um, but others, even enemies that I dislike, as the Bible calls us, to, to love them as well. Um so getting that identity right is crucially important. And, and there's this beautiful story in the Bible about the prodigal son. And I, I do talk about this in the identity chapter because um, it's such a great illustration of identity gone wrong. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the story. The, the son, one of two, takes half of his inheritance, goes off, and he squanders it. And the next thing he knows, he finds himself feeding pigs and realizes one day that the slop he's feeding the pigs is actually better food than he's eating. I mean, he's just completely lost his identity. And and then he has this epiphany that his identity is as the son to this loving father, and that if he would repair that relationship and go back home, he knows that his father has many servants. And even if he could just be a servant of his father, he would be in a much better position than he is eating slop to these pigs. And so he humbles himself, which is a necessary first step when we're course correcting, and goes back home. And of course, his father immediately embraces him and throws a celebration, um, not only because he's got the physical proximity of his son again, but because his son has been found. He has reclaimed his identity as a member of the family. Um, And and all of us can do that. And we, we can't let our identities be tied up by things that have happened to us, even traumas that have happened to us in the past. We need to move past that and remember our identity as sons and daughters of God. And when we do that, then our lives kind of click into place and our path forward becomes more clear.
2: The book is Loving God's Children, the Church and Gender Ideology by John Bursch, and it is out and available now. You can get your copy at Barnes & Noble or Sophia Institute Press. John Bursch, thank you so much for your time today and just your your thoughtful words and for taking the time to just unpack this so clearly and to write a whole book unpacking how, as the church, we love those who are struggling with their gender identity.
0: Well, thank you so much. And and I hope lots of folks get the opportunity to read it, because what you notice um, in the population generally, but especially in the the, the church, um, just a lack of vocabulary to be able to talk about these mm-hmm. things. And so I'm hoping that lots of people will read the book, learn from it. Um, you don't have to have a theology degree or a, a medical degree or a science degree to understand it. I've tried to bring it all down to a fairly simple level. Um, but then you can you can take that information and start having those essential conversations with your family members, your friends, your coworkers, um, and others that we really need to be having if we're going to be able to move forward and to love others well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. John, thank you so much. Again, the book is Loving God's Children, The Church and Gender Ideology. It is out and available today. John, thank you for your time. Thank you.
1: And that'll do it for today's episode. Thank you for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. Now, if you haven't gotten a chance, be sure to check out our evening show right here in this podcast feed. We bring you the top news of the day. Also, make sure to subscribe to the Daily Signal wherever you get your podcasts and help us reach more listeners by leaving a five-star rating and a review. We read all of your feedback. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day. and We'll be back with you at 5 p.m. for our top news edition.